This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. From late 1989 to the end of 1990, Seven men disappeared from the Florida highways. Six of the seven men's bodies were found not far from their abandoned cars. All of the victims had been shot to death. Most of them had also been robbed. None of the crimes were solved. That is, until July 1990, when police were called to the scene of a drunk driving accident. The responsible party had driven off the road and abandoned the vehicle. Upon further investigation, police discovered the car belonged to Peter Sims, a resident of Jupiter, Florida, who went missing a month prior. After running the fingerprints found in the car through their database and carefully cross-referencing witness descriptions, police realized the driver was a previous offender named Eileen Warnos. What the police did not yet realize was that the woman they believed was responsible for the car theft, the woman they discovered because of her previous DUIs, prior arrests, and outstanding warrants, was also the woman history would remember as America's first female serial killer. Picture a murderer, a gangster, A thief. Did you picture any women? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Female Criminals. This is our second episode on Eileen Warnos, nicknamed the Damsel of Death. 
we'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Female Criminals on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Wednesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Eileen Warnos was a serial killer who operated in Florida from 1989 through 1990. She killed seven people, shooting the men who picked her up from the side of the road as she looked for potential Johns. In part one, we discussed the series of traumas that made up Eileen's childhood. We also took a look at her failed marriage and her codependent relationship with her girlfriend Tyra Moore. We learned that part of the reason Eileen engaged in sex work while she was with Ty was to support her girlfriend. On November 30th, 1989, Eileen committed her first murder. From that night, Eileen went on to commit six more murders over the course of the next year. However, it wasn't until she and Ty crashed one of the victim's cars that Florida police began looking into Eileen for the unsolved highway murders. Today, in part two, we'll be discussing Eileen's arrest, trials, and what her life in prison was like leading up to her execution. Police had just traced a palm print found on the inside of Peter Sims' car back to Eileen. Law enforcement found that it also matched fingerprints found on the victim's items police recovered from pawn shops around the region. Police were beginning to suspect that Eileen was responsible for the highway murders, and they put out a warrant for her arrest. On January 5th, 1991, law enforcement put together a massive manhunt for Eileen. Officers from all the counties in which victims were found were called to the investigation. They pulled together all the information they had on Eileen and conducted dozens of interviews with people who said they knew her. Eileen knew the police were onto her, but the idea didn't seem to bother her too much. She continued to hitchhike from town to town around central Florida, drinking and engaging in sex work. However, by January 9th, she was tracked down in Volusia County at the Last Resort Biker Bar, a place she was known to frequent. The arresting officers told Eileen that she was being taken in on several outstanding warrants. The following day, police followed the leads they received during their investigation and located Ty at her sister's home in Pennsylvania. Law enforcement in Pittston, where Ty was staying, brought her in for questioning. While Eileen sat in jail, believing she was only being held for her outstanding warrants, Tyra Moore, the love of her life, made a deal that would send Eileen to her death. In her initial interviews with police, Ty made it very clear that the only reason she hadn't come forward when Eileen initially told her about Richard Mallory's murder was because she feared for her own life. She said she wasn't sure what Eileen would do to her. In order to avoid being charged for her failure to report the crimes, Ty agreed to help the police obtain a confession from Eileen. After two days of coaching from officers, Ty was instructed to contact Eileen by phone. On January 12, 1991, Ty told Eileen that she needed to confess to the murders. 
During their first few phone calls, Eileen was cautious enough not to incriminate herself. She told Ty that she didn't know what she was talking about and that they both needed to keep calm. The police knew they needed to try a different tactic. They decided to leverage Eileen's deep love for Ty against her. Before the next call between the pair, police told Ty she needed to pretend like she was about to be charged with the six murders. Ty did as she was told. During that final conversation, she said she was scared that she would go to prison for something she didn't do. She begged Eileen to come confess and protect her. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Claire. Eileen's decision to confess to save Ty is the ultimate example of the codependency in Eileen and Ty's relationship. Mental Health America defines one of the key signs of a codependent relationship as when one party gains their sense of purpose from making sacrifices for the benefit of their partner. In Eileen's mind, the act of giving herself up to save Ty was probably the ultimate display of love. Another aspect of a codependent relationship is having complete trust in one's partner. It was likely that Eileen had no idea she was being coerced because she trusted Ty above everyone else. With these things in mind, it's easy to see why the police's plan to use Ty against Eileen worked. On January 16, 1991, just a week after her arrest, Eileen confessed to six of the seven murders she committed. In her confession, she was adamant about two things, that Ty had no involvement in any of the murders and that Eileen had killed all the men in self-defense. The moment Eileen's capture and confession were made public, the media swarmed on the story. Florida media outlets were the first to cover Eileen's story, but the national coverage followed quickly after. Headlines about the case read, A Daughter on Death Row, and Woman Serial Killer Captured, Lesbian Lover to Testify. People were fascinated with the idea that a woman was capable of such a vicious series of crimes. Until Eileen, the most famous and frequently studied serial killers were men. Though the press expected another Ted Bundy, or Jeffrey Dahmer, they were introduced to wide-eyed, five-foot-four Eileen. She was neither as eerily charming as Bundy, nor as menacing as Richard Ramirez. Yet Eileen and her crimes captivated the nation. Nina Burley, the woman who penned the book Fatal Gift of Beauty, The Trials of Amanda Knox, believes that people show more interest in female murderers because it goes beyond the ordinary. When police announce that they're on the hunt for a new serial killer, most people expect the perpetrator to be a man. Men are typically viewed as more violent and are more likely to become repeat offenders. Therefore, when it is discovered that a woman committed the crimes, people take more notice. And Eileen had never received this much attention in her life. She relished it, but it was about to turn sour in a way she didn't expect. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to female criminals. Not long after her arrest in early January of 1991, 34-year-old Eileen Warnos was approached by several authors, filmmakers, and journalists, all vying for the rights to her story. After consulting with her lawyer, Eileen sold the rights to her life story to filmmaker Jacqueline Giroux. Eileen hoped the movie based on her life would make her rich. But she did not realize that Florida had Son of Sam laws in place. These laws prevent criminals from profiting off films, books, TV shows, and other forms of media based on their lives. Son of Sam laws were put into effect after filmmakers and writers approached New York serial killer David Berkowitz with the prospect of buying his story. Eileen was furious when she found out she would receive none of the money from her life story. She also fired her attorney, Russell Armstrong, because she believed he was only after fame and profit. Armstrong had, in fact, been the one to contact Giroux about making a film based on Eileen's story. He tried to negotiate a deal regarding the profits made from the film. Both Giroux and Armstrong maintained that no money was exchanged between them, but Eileen no longer trusted Armstrong. After Eileen fired Armstrong, she often refused interviews or meetings with press while she awaited trial. Eileen spent most of her days in her cell and kept to herself. She received dozens of letters from people who called themselves her fans, but she ignored most of these letters. She did, however, maintain correspondence with her best friend, Dawn. Eileen was allowed only four pages per letter, and she used most of these pages to describe her daily life and innermost thoughts to Dawn. Eileen described how she spent most of her time in her cell, writing, reading, and cleaning. She once wrote, quote, Man, I studied psychology, theology, archaeology, the nervous system, the brain, anatomy, and I read the Bible four times in its entirety, end quote. She and Dawn also shared a love for The Wizard of Oz and discussed any new memorabilia Dawn purchased. Dawn's letters are not compiled in the book Dear Dawn, but it's clear that she shared stories of her family, talked to Eileen about their past, and wrote about her rapidly progressing multiple sclerosis. Eileen always made sure to ask about her friend's health, but these kind and concerned outpourings stood in strange juxtaposition with her accusations about the guards spitting in her food or tormenting her on a daily basis. In addition to her regular communication with Dawn, Eileen struck up a correspondence with a woman named Arlene Pralley. 
1991, Prowley was a 44-year-old Florida horse farmer and a born-again Christian. In her first letter, Prowley described how she saw Eileen's picture in the newspaper and she heard God's command to reach out to Eileen. Prowley claimed she wanted to help Eileen find redemption through Christ, and the two quickly struck up a friendship. Prowley was very maternal toward Eileen from the very beginning. Whenever the pair exchanged letters, Prowley included encouraging notes, Bible verses, and thoughtful remarks. This type of relationship was new for Eileen. After all, she never fully experienced affection from her neglectful mother, nor her cold and abusive grandmother. Because Prowley was gentle and kind to her, Eileen trusted her almost immediately. She even sought Prowley's legal advice and made a commitment to study the Dake Bible, a heavily annotated version of the King James Bible used for study. The pair grew close quickly. And on November 2, 1991, Prowley, who was only nine years older than Eileen and had only known her for a few months, legally adopted Eileen as her daughter. Don Botkins, Eileen's closest friend, cautioned Eileen that Prowley might be trying to take advantage of her, either by profiting off her story or gaining personal fame through her association to Eileen. But Eileen couldn't see this. Eileen told Don that she knew she was easily taken advantage of. She said, quote, I love to give love. I know I've hurt myself being this way, but the pain doesn't feel so bad when you know you're struggling to give love. End quote. Eileen likely felt extremely alone in the world. After all, Ty was part of the reason she was in prison. Her family made no effort to comfort her, and her closest friend Dawn only communicated to her through letters. The idea of having a mother, even if it was just a title, was something Eileen could not pass up. She did not hesitate to sign the adoption paperwork. However, Eileen's friendship with Prowley was anything but stable. One week, Eileen wrote to Don that the pair were close and Prowley was serving Eileen's best interests. The next, Eileen was convinced that Prowley had organized crime connections and had only adopted her to set her up for murder. Eileen had a habit of switching her opinions on things quickly. This might have suggested that she was struggling with cognitive dissonance. Saul McLeod of the psychology department at the University of Manchester defines cognitive dissonance as a situation involving conflicting attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors that produces a feeling of discomfort leading to an alteration in one of the attitudes, beliefs, or behaviors to reduce that discomfort and restore balance to the person's life. In a way, Cognitive dissonance is sort of like changing the narrative of one's life to better suit or make sense of one's situation. At its core, cognitive dissonance is a coping mechanism. It helps a person fight feelings of disharmony in his or her life. In Eileen's case, she had dealt with an abusive childhood, a lonely adulthood, and a life in prison. She needed to find a way to explain these circumstances and perhaps make sense of why they were happening to her. Changing her opinion and shifting her trust frequently made it easier for her to deal with the instability in her life. But Eileen's distrust of Prally was not always unfounded. For example, Eileen was furious when she found out that her adoptive mother was also represented by her attorney, Stephen Glazer. 
Glazer was a Florida attorney who went by the nickname Dr. Legal. After all, it was Prowley who had introduced Eileen to Glazer, and Eileen expected to be able to trust him. However, Glazer facilitated paid appearances by Prowley, and he was also responsible for securing her a royalty percentage for every copy of the book Dolores Kennedy wrote about the murders. Kennedy had gotten the rights to write about Eileen early in the case, around the same time as filmmaker Jacqueline Giroux. Kennedy, Prowley, and Glazer worked together to iron out the contracts in a way that benefited solely the three of them. The constant back and forth with Prowley and Glazer seemed to be at the forefront of Eileen's mind, even as her trial date drew closer. Her defense team met with her regularly to convince her to plead guilty to six of the seven murders in exchange for life sentences. But the prosecution's goal was to get a death penalty conviction, and Eileen was sent to trial for the murder of her first victim, Richard Mallory, on January 14, 1992. During her trial, Eileen's defense team argued that Eileen's original confessions were obtained illegally, because Eileen was not offered a public defender beforehand. Meanwhile, the prosecution used Eileen's videotaped confession as its main piece of evidence. In the video, Eileen made no mention of a rape attempt by Mallory. The prosecution also invoked Florida's Williams rule to present the court with evidence related to Eileen's other crimes to establish a pattern of criminal behavior. Eileen's defense team did not want her to take the stand but she insisted on testifying on her own behalf. During cross-examination, she pleaded the Fifth Amendment to protect herself from self-incrimination 25 times. She was the only witness for the defense. The trial continued for 13 days, during which time the prosecution called Ty and the arresting detectives as witnesses. On January 27, 1992, after two hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a guilty verdict on all charges in Mallory's murder. This outraged Eileen. She stood up and shouted at the jury, which was responsible for deciding whether or not she should be put to death. Quote, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. End quote. After this outburst, she wrote to Dawn saying, quote, Did I suddenly get demon-possessed or what? At least I brought humor into the courtroom, end quote. Eileen went on to explain to Dawn why she was so mad. She believed that the judge was dismissive and refused to believe that she had been sexually assaulted. She thought he was so harsh on her to secure his own re-election. Eileen's grip on reality was slipping and she was doing nothing to hold on to it. However, in Florida, if the defense team raises concerns about their client's competence, the court is required to provide proof of one of two things. One, that the defendant lacks sufficient present ability to consult with his or her lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding. Or two, he or she has no rational and factual understanding of the proceedings against her. During the sentencing phase of her trial, Eileen's defense team was quick to raise their concerns about her competency, and the state was therefore required to put her through a series of interviews and tests to meet one of the burdens of proof we previously mentioned. Eileen was examined by the state's expert psychologist. 
After several tests and interviews meant to assess Eileen's competency, forensic psychologist Elizabeth Mann described Eileen as, quote, a primitive, paranoid, unhappy person capable of minute-by-minute mood swings, end quote. The other psychologists diagnosed Eileen with borderline personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health defines borderline personality disorder as a mental illness marked by an ongoing pattern of varying moods, self-image, and behavior. People with borderline personality disorder often struggle with extreme bouts of anger, anxiety, or depression. Other symptoms of borderline personality disorder include impulsivity, over-dependency on others, and unstable identity. We defined antisocial personality disorder in part one when we discussed Eileen's behavior as a teenager, but as a refresher, the Mayo Clinic's website states that it is, quote, a mental condition in which a person consistently shows no regard for right and wrong and ignores the rights and feelings of others. End quote. Chronic lying, callous disrespect for others, disregard for right and wrong behavior are several examples of behaviors common in people with this disorder. The state psychologist testified that Eileen likely struggled with mental disturbances or impaired mental capacity at the time she committed the murder. However, He also stated that Eileen's mental instability was not severe enough to remove her from guilt, as she was able to consult with her attorneys with no problem. On January 31, 1992, all 12 of the jurors recommended the death penalty. The judge took their recommendation into consideration and sentenced Eileen to death. Even after she was sent to death row at the Broward Correction Institution in Florida, Eileen maintained that she killed Mallory in self-defense after he tried to rape her. After her sentencing, her defense team discovered that Mallory had a history of violence towards women and had done a stint in a mental health facility for violent sex offenders. They hoped for a retrial based on the new evidence against Mallory. Two months to the day after her sentencing, Eileen pleaded no contest in the charges against her in the murder cases of Charles Dick Humphreys, Troy Burris, and David Spears. This was partially at the suggestion of Prally, who told Eileen that if she wanted to get right with God, she needed to own up to her crimes. Following Prally's advice, Eileen told the court, quote, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to, end quote. Eileen was given three more death sentences for the Humphreys, Burris, and Spears murders on May 15, 1992. After this sentencing, Eileen received a visit from her family. In a letter to Dawn, Eileen described her stepsister's reaction to Eileen's convictions. During the visit, Lori told Eileen, quote, When you get the chair, I just wish I could pull the switch. End quote. Eileen's adoptive brother and sister both testified on behalf of the prosecution during her trial, stating that they never saw Eileen abused in their childhood. They treated Eileen like she was an embarrassment and refused to show sympathy for her. 
Eileen seemed to lose some of her fight after the visit with her sister and after receiving the additional three death sentences. In June 1992, she pled guilty to Charles Karskadden's murder and received her fifth death sentence. Anyway, I wanted to come clean and tell the world that I killed those men first degree. Robbed and killed and The following February, Eileen pled guilty to Walter Gino Antonio's murder. She received her final death sentence. Because each murder was tried separately, Eileen received a separate sentence for each one, resulting in six total death penalties. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now let's continue our story. By February of 1993, 36-year-old Eileen Wernos had six separate death penalties under her belt. The only bright side was that the state of Florida was unable to bring charges against Eileen in the case of Peter Sims, because Sims' body was never located. This was a small victory in Eileen's mind, and she regained some of her fighting spirit. Despite facing six other death sentences, she went back and forth on her guilt. Sometimes she referred to herself as a hero. When she was asked why she thought of herself this way, she replied, quote, because women aren't supposed to pose such power and authority over themselves against an assailant. We're supposed to be abused, used, raped, and beaten, and then call the cops afterward. Actually, I should be given a medal for the murders, end quote. Other times, she admitted a deep guilt for her crimes. In a regretful letter to Dawn, she wrote, quote, I became possessed in the force of heavy beer drinking and bad experiences recalled while under the curses of alcoholism. All so sad but true. The real Eileen never killed anyone, end quote. It was likely that Eileen's back-and-forth behavior went beyond her personality disorders at this point, one explanation for her erratic behavior was depression. It would not have been out of the question for Eileen to be depressed. After all, she was faced with her own execution. Her family had turned on her yet again, and her relationship with Prally was touch and go. Ty had only written once to explain her involvement in the movies being made about Eileen. Once again, the people Eileen loved and trusted the most left her to fend for herself and it finally got to her. Dr. Carrie Barron writes that depression often interferes with a person's ability to make a solid commitment to anything in their life, whether it be a relationship, a decision, or a pattern of behavior, 
and this may have caused Eileen to struggle to commit to a specific mindset regarding her guilt. However, in one of her letters to Dawn, she finally shared that her reason for all of the murders was purely financial and motivated by her obsessive need to provide for Ty. She wrote, quote, While I thumbed and hooked, Ty and I were left in another financial upset. And with the rain still coming down hard, I robbed then and killed seven, end quote. Though Eileen was back and forth on many things in her life, this confession came in one of her most coherent letters and has the most genuine tone. Eileen was willing to lie about many things, but not about anything involving Ty. That's what leads many experts on the case to view this confession as the closest to the truth. In 1996, Eileen's legal counsel filed for an appeal. Unfortunately for Eileen, the appeal was denied because the court refused to hear new arguments based on Richard Mallory's prior sex crime convictions. Eileen's team filed for a stay of execution as they prepared for another appeal in 2001. But 45-year-old Eileen was disheartened and exhausted with the legal system. She chose to petition the Florida Supreme Court for the right to fire her attorneys. In the letter, she made herself out as a cold-hearted killer who would do so again given the chance. She wrote, quote, I killed seven. I was going after 12. So I've got five more left to get. What more do I need to say so that everyone understands this isn't a game? End quote. It's not clear why she would take this tack, specifically if she was supposed to prove that she was in the correct frame of mind to dismiss her legal team. Because before the state allowed Eileen to give up her counsel, they required her to, once again, undergo psychiatric evaluation. A team of state psychiatrists gave her the Hare Psychopathy Checklist Assessment. Dr. Robert D. Hare invented this test in the 1970s to aid in his study of criminal offenders in Vancouver, Canada. The psychopathy checklist is a diagnostic tool used to detect a person's psychopath or antisocial tendencies. Participants are asked to complete a 20-question personality inventory. Each question has a score of two points, making 40 the highest possible score. People who score 25 or above are likely to receive a psychopathy diagnosis. Upon completion, Eileen's score was a 32 out of 40. Eileen retorted by saying that she was completely sane and knew what she was doing by firing her legal team. She wrote, quote, I'm so sick of hearing this she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again, end quote. Then-Governor Jeb Bush was running for re-election that year under a pro-capital punishment agenda. And when the psychiatrist declared Eileen competent, he lifted the stay of execution and all Eileen's right to appeals were terminated. It was then that Eileen allowed herself to slip away mentally day by day. It will fall to Volusia County Judge Michael Hutchison to decide whether Eileen Warnos is making a knowing, voluntary, and intelligent decision about dropping her appeals and allowing state officials to execute her. Warnos says she would kill again if ever released. She told a newspaper recently she did not kill in self-defense, but instead was motivated by hatred of men. 
She wrote to Dawn, accusing the guards at BCI of spitting and urinating in her food. She described how certain officers were mistreating her. She said some would walk by her cell every day and tell her she should commit suicide and save everyone the trouble. She told Dawn that she often elected to wash her hair and body in her cell's sink rather than take a shower and have to confront the abusive guards. In between her letters discussing her case, Eileen wrote to Dawn about world events and news. In a letter she wrote on September 15, 2001, just days after 9-11, she explained her belief that the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon had been inside jobs. She used shoddy math, incorrect reports, and misquoted sections of the Bible to explain away the tragedy. Eileen spent the next year doing much of the same, reading the news, communicating with Dawn, and minding her business in prison. In the fall of 2002, a few weeks before her execution, a British filmmaker named Nick Broomfield conducted a series of interviews with Eileen and her remaining friends and family for his documentary, Eileen, The Life and Death of a Serial Killer. In the interviews, Eileen bounced between coherent and unbalanced. She told Broomfield that the prison was trying to break her psychologically by using torture tactics. She said, quote, they had the intercom on in the cell and they kept lying that it was on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997, it was crushing my head, end quote. When she was calmer, Broomfield asked her how she imagined herself if her life had been different. Eileen replied, quote, Now, if I came from a background of a family that was right on, where I came from a family that was supportive, and everything was financially stable and everybody was really tight, I would have become, more than likely, an outstanding citizen of America, end quote. Broomfield went on to ask if Eileen had any regrets. Eileen said, quote, I miss Ty. I lost Tyra over this, and the people that lost their loved ones and everything, I really think first about the people that lose their loved ones, and then Tyra. I have to put them first on this whole thing. I'm really sorry for, you know, them losing their loved ones, man. I know the feeling." End quote. Broomfield also met with Diane Wuornos, Eileen's estranged mother. He asked her how she felt knowing that her daughter's execution was very soon, to which Diane replied, Quote, I think I'll rest better, end quote. Diane had married and divorced two more times after Eileen and Keith's father. She didn't have any additional children, and she never reconnected with Eileen. But her reaction to Broomfield's question gives us an interesting insight into her relationship with her daughter. It was very likely that Diane felt guilty for the way things turned out for Eileen. Not only did her daughter suffer a lot of trauma in life, she also inflicted pain on many others. Guilt can be an extremely draining emotion. Dr. Guy Winch describes guilt as a snooze alarm in your head that won't shut off. Guilt makes it hard for a person to fully engage in their lives. It can disrupt sleep and affect emotions. Diane probably felt responsible for the way Eileen turned out, and those guilty feelings haunted her for years. Eileen's final public interview is one of the most famously associated with her case. When members of the press asked her if she was prepared to face her execution, she seemed happy. She replied, quote, I'm okay. 
God is going to be there. Jesus Christ is going to be there. All the angels and everything. You know, whatever's on the beyond, I think, is going to be more like Star Trek, beaming me up into a space vehicle, man. Whatever is in the beyond is going to be good because I did the right thing. I saved a lot of people's butts from getting hurt and raped and killed, too. End quote. However, her mood shifted quickly. The more questions they asked her about the killings, the less coherent she became. She grew agitated and angry with the crowd. Her eyes grew wide. She thrust her chin in the air defensively, and she started shouting. The last thing Eileen said in the interview was, quote, You sabotaged me, society, and the cops, and the system. A raped woman got executed. It was used for books and movies and re-elections and everything else. Thanks a lot. You're an inhumane bunch. End quote. She showed just how mentally unwell she was when she added, quote, 2019, a rock's supposed to hit you anyhow. You're all going to get nuked. You don't take a human life like this and just sabotage it and rip it apart like Jesus on the cross and say thanks a lot for all the money I made off of you and not care about a human being and the truth being told. Now I know what Jesus was going through. I've been trying to tell the truth and I keep getting stepped on, end quote. Professor Quentin Shires of Capella University suggested that Eileen's comparison of herself to Jesus Christ was a sign that she struggled with a martyr complex. Shires said this psychological condition is often present when, quote, an individual desires the feeling of being a martyr for his or her own sake, seeking out suffering or prosecution because it either feeds a psychological need or a desire to avoid responsibility. End quote. Shires also states that a person with a martyr complex, quote, routinely emphasizes, exaggerates, and creates a negative experience in order to place blame, guilt, and sorrow on another person, end quote. It was clear that Eileen was using the martyrdom tactic as another coping mechanism to justify the murders and the consequences of those crimes. She continued to compare herself to Jesus, and in fact, she spent the last month of her prison time without speaking to anyone on the outside. Before she stopped writing letters in late September 2002, she wrote Dawn saying, quote, I'd like to spend the last of these nine days in God, end quote. In that final letter, it was clear that Eileen was exhausted with fighting. She seemed ready for her death. She wrote, quote, I'll miss you, Don, but I hate this world. I'd prefer to leave it, end quote. Broomfield later asked Don how she found the time to write Eileen every day while dealing with multiple sclerosis and keeping her family in order. Don replied, quote, I didn't find the time. I made the time. I knew I was her only friend, end quote. The night before Eileen's execution, Dawn visited from 9 p.m. to midnight. The pair ate hamburgers and other snacks from the prison commissary. When Dawn left, Eileen returned to her cell but got little sleep. Prison officials say she was restless and agitated. The next morning, on October 9, 2002, Eileen refused her final meal. She drank only a cup of black coffee before she was taken from her cell to the place of execution. 
29 people came to attend the execution. Six of them were victims' family members, 12 were journalists, and the rest were state and county officials. Terry Griffith, the daughter of victim Charles Humphreys, noted that Eileen seemed surprised that so many people had come to see her death. When asked if she had any last words, Eileen responded, quote, yes. I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie, big mothership and all, I'll be back, I'll be back. End quote. At 9.30, she was strapped to the table, injected with sodium thiopental, pancuronium bromide, and potassium chloride. 17 minutes later, at 9.47 a.m., Eileen was pronounced dead, making her the 10th woman in the U.S. to receive capital punishment since 1976. She was 46 years old. Her demeanor seemed to be fairly uh, calm. When the curtain first opened up, she was, of course, strapped to the gurney, and she lifted her head, looked up, and looked around at the crowd, and she had kind of a, an amazed look on her face. After that, she just laid down and stared at the ceiling and then gave her final statement. Before her death, Eileen had asked Dawn to scatter her remains on the beach that she and Ty walked together frequently during their relationship. She called it one of the happiest places. Dawn told Eileen it wouldn't be fair to the families of her Florida victims, and Eileen eventually relented. After Eileen's body was cremated, Dawn took her ashes back to Michigan and held a funeral. She granted Eileen's request to play Natalie Merchant's carnival at the service. At the end, Dawn and her family scattered Eileen's ashes under a tree on their property. Even after her death, Eileen remained a fascinating figure to the public. In January 2004, just a little over a year after Eileen's execution, director Patty Jenkins released her movie, Monster. The film starred Charlize Theron as the on-screen version of Eileen. The role earned Theron a nomination for Best Actress at that year's Academy Awards. Theron won the Oscar on what would have been Eileen's 48th birthday. Lisa Kester and Daphne Gottlieb, the editors for the book Dear Dawn, reached out to Dawn Botkins in 2011 to see if she had anything she wanted to add to their project besides Eileen's letters. Dawn handed them a letter she wrote to Eileen posthumously. It simply read, quote, Well there, my friend, I know you have reached the other side the only place you ever wanted to be, your home up in heaven, and it more than makes up for the suffering you went through here on earth. I miss writing you more than I ever thought I could. You were so funny and thoughtful. You will always be loved and remembered and a part of our family. I love you, Dawn. Beyond being the inspiration for a number of movies, books, documentaries, and even an opera, Eileen changed the way society thinks about serial killers. Her case forced people to change their perception that only men could be serial killers. There are even some feminist groups who view Eileen as a hero in a macabre sort of way as she went after men who she claimed had raped her. Still, there is no question that her crimes were terrible. She shot seven men 
and left them to die with what appeared to be very little remorse. It seems like the most remorse she may have had about the situation was about the person she could have been had circumstances been different. She may have found fame, but she had lost everyone she ever loved and who she felt ever loved her. And eventually, she lost her life too. Thanks again for listening to Female Criminals. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Female Criminals, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Thanks for listening. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Claire Delamar and Vanessa Richardson.